Welcome to Your Family Dog, a podcast dedicated to helping families love living with dogs. Hi, and welcome back to Your Family Dog. I'm Julie Fudge-Smith, and I'm here with the incomparable Tina Spring. And today we have a guest by the name of Brady Folk. And he is a dog trainer in Austin, Texas, who specializes in empowering owners, puppies and dogs, to achieve their greater success and harmony in their homes. We decided to bring Brady on for a variety of reasons. He does a lot of interesting things. But the other thing was Tina and I noticed is um, we have very, most of our guests tend to be females who tend to dominate the dog training industry. And so we really are enjoying the idea of having a male perspective on dog training. So if you could, um, if that's an issue that you could address, that would be interesting as well. Have you found it to be challenging to be a male in the uh, predominantly female industry of dog training? But I don't get to ask the first question because I introduced you. So I'm going to turn it over to Tina and she can ask whatever she thinks is the appropriate first question. There you go, Tina. Hey, Brady, we're so glad you're here. What got you started as a dog trainer? Yeah, uh, I'm super happy to be here, too. I love the informal conversations. I could talk about dogs forever. So if you like talking about dogs, you're in the right place for anyone listening right now. And uh, just to preframe, I like to keep things fun and loose uh, because they did some studies and they found to learn something, you could learn something in about 300 to 400 repetitions with just doing it over and over again. And then they did a study where they introduced some play and some movement into it. And someone was able to learn something in about 30 to 40 repetitions. So I like to shake it out, pat myself on the back. You know, we're all here. Um, so I applaud everyone who likes to learn and listen to podcasts because I'm a nerd like you all. Interesting. I hadn't heard that study, but that that makes perfect sense to me. And I know that my mm-hmm. sister, who's an occupational therapist and works with kids, she primarily teaches everything through play. Yeah. That's how she connects with all of her kids. And uh, so that do, that makes perfect sense to me. But go. Yeah. I learned a lot of lessons through playing sports. So that was my life. Um, but how I got started, I'm the oldest of six. I grew up in a house with dogs my entire life. And they really were just wild animals that most of the time didn't poop or pee inside the house. But I remember being the oldest. I would get home from school. And my mom would say, get in the car. We got to go find the dogs because they ran away again. And we would just follow the trash cans that had been knocked over. And like eventually we would catch them if the rescue had caught them. Um, and so when I was, I, I left the house when I was 18. And um, I got my first dog when I was 20 years old, 21 years old. And uh, I thought it was going to be easy. I thought all I had to do was just give them more love and more attention than my parents gave them. I thought I just had to buy the best food for them. Um, and I thought we, they would sleep in my bed and we would get along just great. And after about six months of that, and I had carpet missing and the doors were chewed on and um, many, many accidents because my dog had no idea how to tell me he had to go potty, right? So it's like there was no form of communication being established between us. Uh, so I, I hit my my rock bottom, like some people out there may be feeling at this moment. Um, and so I had to go do the hard work. I had to go learn the lessons. I uh, I listened to Tim Ferriss a lot. Um, and he had on someone by the name of Susan Garrett, and she's a Canadian world agility champion, and she's phenomenal. I love all of her. Stuff. Oh yes, we we love Susan Garrett. She is love a it. 
phenomenal trainer and um, just a really good person to start with. So congratulations on that one. Well, and she's funny. Like she doesn't take herself too terribly seriously, which I love, right? I also love that. So lots of dog trainers, when you watch their videos, kind of edit out any error, anything that didn't go according to script, they like leave it on the editing room floor. And I love that Susan doesn't. Like, if it goes wrong, she lets you see that it went wrong, even though she's, you know, a big monkey muck trainer and mm-hmm. also laughs at herself and laughs with her dog. It doesn't get all bent out of shape about it and goes, okay, well, we're going to reframe that and we're going to come in it again. Or, okay, we were just like not synced up. And so we're just going to try it exactly the same way again and see if we get a different outcome, which yeah. I think is lovely. And hugely helpful to someone who's trying to learn, right? Mm -hmm. Seeing it perfect, in my opinion, they don't get to see real life. For sure. Yeah, no, it's totally true. Because then you have this whole facade going on of what was really happening. And I mean, growing up in a big family, it was kind of like that, because inside, we would, um, we would be all crazy. And then we go out somewhere, and we try to be like the perfect family. And we all know that we weren't the perfect family. And then years later, you got to do the work and be like, why am I such a people pleaser and all these things? And it's like, okay, yeah, these, so it's good to show the whole picture. Like, yeah, we're a little bit crazy. It's okay. Who isn't? Well, rest assured, you're the only one with baggage on this this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Like I tell people all the time, like I've arguably made, you know, a personality disorder rooted in childhood into a decent living. So, you know, it's, I think I'm the oldest of four, so I'm right there with you. Um, of like just, and we were pretty well mannered at home too, um, but for maybe not the best reasons. <laughs> so yeah, so like I get it. Like it was just nutty for sure. Yeah, so I I found Susan Garrett. I spent thousands of dollars to join her online programs like Recallers or Agility Nation and um, her Wag Nation. I've joined pretty much all of her programs for Cyber inner circle one, which is still on my list, because I would love just to be mentored a little bit more, always a student. And um, so then I started doing doing the work, right? I had to go get all the repetitions. I had to condition it until it stuck. And as I started doing that, I got better. I started helping friends and friends and families with their dogs. And then I started getting more clients and referrals. And um, I just continued on because it's, um, it's different every single time. Every dog is a little bit different. Like you can understand the principles of it, which is what I really like to emphasize the classical operant conditioning of it. And then once you train your brain for that, you can tackle any problem that you see if you know how to approach it. Very good. Ian and I talk a lot about um, positive reinforcement training, which of course the basis is behind is classical of both operant conditioning. One of the things that you talk about in your your bio was uh, dog training transformation. So what do you mean by dog transformation? Can you describe that? And then tell us a little bit about what was your most challenging and rewarding dog transformation? Yeah, of course. Transformation, right? Um, I want the owner and the dog to be able to go on without me and have the tools and the resources to be successful. And so in order for that to happen, you have to go through a transformational journey. Um, If you watch any movie, if you watch Cars, right, there's a transformational journey going on. He wants to win the Piston Cup, right? He doesn't do it. He gets in some some trouble. He hits his rock bottom. He finds a mentor. He gets trained up a little bit. He goes back out with his new skills. He still doesn't win, goes back, trains a little bit more, goes back out, tries again. And then when he's about to win, 
he decides it's not about winning, it's about helping people. And that whole transformational journey, if you're able to be like, I want to train my dog. And then it's like, no, I want to have a better relationship with my dog. Um, I want to communicate with my dog. It's kind of like sign language in a sense, learning how to read body language and um, understanding what's going on with them and not anthropomorphizing and like creating a whole story in your head. It's like looking at what's going on. It's why I like Bob Bailey and Susan Garrett and addressing the behavior in a systematic way. Very yeah, that's um Tina and I talk a lot about those very things too. That 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 part of the the if you really want to move forward with your dog, you have to understand what your dog is telling you. So dog yeah. body language is is absolutely critical. But the whole idea is is I I used to tell people I'm not retired from training, but I used to tell people I said, look, this is not a particularly good business model. But my job is to is to make myself um worth, you know, in some ways a to, to teach you, give you the skills for a lifetime of learning with your dog so you no longer need me, which is not a particularly good business skill, but it is a really good dog training skill, is to give you the tools, which is why, you know, the the byline for our podcast is helping families love living with dogs. That's what we really want to promote. We're not asking or trying to give you the perfect dog. What we're trying to give you is a relationship with your dog that you're going to love and is going to work for you and your family. So can you tell us about one of your most challenging and or rewarding transformations? Yeah, there's a whole bunch. I look at every dog as a fun little voyage to go on together. Um, one of my most favorite, and I was just talking to their owners the other day because we had a um, my girlfriend, it was one of her work friends, and we had a, her Christmas party. So I was talking to them about how they're doing and um, their dog. Uh, when I first got him, he was wearing diapers because he was peeing around the house and marking things. He was terrified of so many things. Like when I first walked over the house, he would bark at me, run away from me. He tried to nip me. Uh, it's a little Pomeranian just to give you a little picture of what's going on. And this dude was, um, he, uh, he was living in, he was living in a lot of beige or purple. And when I say that, what I mean is he was living just to try to be safe. A lot of the times so he was living in a lot of fear and he just wanted to be safe. Um, and he was just, he, he was good at routine, but he didn't know too many routines. So it was like giving him some structure to his day. So anyways, I did a board and train with them and did some lessons with their parents. And we were able to, one, show them how to ring a bell to go potty, which is huge, right? To have a communication um, of how to do that. We were able to get him out of diapers. So he's no longer wearing diapers, which is just like a huge thing. Um, we were able to get him crate trained and start teaching him how to be confident on his own and how to enjoy his crate and how to have a safe place so he feels uncomfortable. He could always go in there. Uh, we showed him how he would always bark at people coming at the door and when the doorbell rings. So we trained an incompatible behavior of when someone knocks at the door, they run to their crate. And so we were able to switch that up as well. So he is just thriving now with his sister Winnie and they can go, they, he wears a head halter now so he can go walking, go to more places. He's better with his just being a little bit more grounded and having more confidence in how to handle things. It was, um, it's fun. And it's a little Pomeranian. So people are like, how do you train this little happy dog? And it's like, I've trained a pig how to paint. I have a guinea pig. She can follow a little target stick around. And she knows when I knock on her side to run up to her second story. And it's, it's just putting some of these things together. And it's, it's just so much fun. Well, and it's, it is fun. I mean, I, I will say, I mean, the vast majority of my work is fun. Occasionally yeah. business really bites, but Literally. Um, but but that's relatively rare. And if I'm doing if I'm doing my job well, generally that's not happening. I find lots of especially so I had a, a small breed, 
uh, in this morning for a first private lesson. And he's a really great dog. He just has no idea what he's supposed to be doing. Right. And so in typical Boston's uh, Boston Terrier manner, like it shows up as hyperactivity and nuttiness. Right. And he's not bad. Like he's sweet. He just has no idea how to navigate the world. Right. So he landed in an amazing place with owners and a family who want to help him with that. Um, and it was amazing. I think his dad was really, really impressed with how quickly he learned, right. That just having a high reinforcement rate and going, Hey, bud, this is what we're doing. Like you're going to sort it out. He did really great. And that's really empowering to people too. I find a lot of times the humans kind of also are shut down and don't know what to do and are a little afraid that the dog trainer is going to yell at them or judge them. And I'm like, no, you're here because you wanted help. Like, I'm not, I'm not mad at you. Like, yay, we get to spend, you know, some time together. So I I do think it's really important that dog trainers find a place uh, to really love people as much as they love the dogs. And I think that that often is lacking in our industry. Oh, I couldn't agree with you more. I remember one time and I was at a convention and I was, I was a pet sitting convention. It was still when I was still doing pet sitting. And this one woman said to me, I just really want to get past the people to the dogs because I really don't like the people. Mm-hmm. And I said to her, then why are you in this industry? Because I've never had a dog write me a check or mm-hmm. give me a credit card unless I trained it, put a credit card, you know, to give a credit card. But, you know, I've never actually had one volunteer to pay me. And that, you know, if you want this to work for the dog, then you have to make it work for the people because you can do everything that you want to do. But if they're not on board, it's all going to go south. So I think it's really an important thing to remember that that dog trainers, you have to be your your people trainers as well, and that you have to like people or you're just not going to be successful. So what I wanted to ask you next was um, you do service dog training. Can you talk a little bit about that? And um also, too, we had we've had one episode. It was a while ago about the difference between service dog training, therapy dog training, and support animal training. And they're three very different things. And so, um, I wanted you to talk about what it is that you do. Whether you do all three of those, or you specialize in service dog training, or what is it that you do? Yeah, great. So that's been something that I've added recently um, because I met someone and she has cerebral palsy. And she had her first service dog and he is seven years old and they age out at eight. You can't be a service dog after eight, right? And so she got a new golden doodle. And knowing what you know about dog training and once you break it down and you understand the American with Disabilities Act and like the, the, some of the things that they got to do, uh, anyone can train their own service dog. So I offered up my help to help her train it. And we taught this dog how to uh, pick up a credit card, how to pick up her phone, how to open the fridge and get out a water bottle, um, how to do all these fun things, how to, she has a wheelchair. So how to stay by the wheelchair and stay away from um, the the controller, um, do all these things. It's, it's just a lot of fun. And you're using the same uh, principles as you would train a dog to do anything else. Right. So um, that's how I got started into it. And I've done one other person I did. A, I helped a veteran with his dog. He has a Husky and um, I trained him up and got him able to uh, just be better walking on leash, not leaving to go um, go smell random things or go pee on things. Right. And to be also able to provide um, support to him by the form of deep pressure therapy or interrupting his pattern by licking his face or uh, by barking at him. 
And there's, um, there, there is a huge difference between that service dog and the therapy dog and the support dog, like you mentioned, and then just people who just want their dream dog, right? Some people just want a really good dog and they can still learn how to open up a fridge and get you a water bottle. You just don't need a service dog, you know, but we can train all the same stuff. That's the fun part about it all. So uh, when I see an opportunity to help people in those situations, that's when I'll do the service dog training. Um, and I've just been incorporating more of that stuff just in my regular training, like how to teach your dog deep pressure therapy, because they still have to hold the sit, wait, be invited on, have a control down, stay there for you while you can touch them. And they got to be comfortable with that. And then you got to ask them to get off. And like, that's just cool to be able to have your dog whenever you want it to. Um, and then a retrieve, like you're just teaching, you could teach them to pick up a ball, a credit card, a phone, like literally anything you want, a Rook's cube. Uh, you just got to condition it. And then... <laughs> Um, teaching that it's valuable to to grab it, you know. Does that help? Yes. Um, my question is 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 um, how do you teach a soft mount? Because if you're getting a water bottle out of the refrigerator, if I know my dogs, by the time the water bottle gets to me, there's no water left in it. So how mm. do you teach a soft mount? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's um that is a very interesting one because water bottles they have poked a few holes in it, and then there's water all over the ground. Um, so. I will start by just conditioning the pickup of it. And I'm just very specific when you pick up this water bottle, um, when I reward and what behaviors that I reward. Um, so if they're puncturing holes in it, that they lose the, the chance to earn reinforcement for that one, you know? And so they learn through consequence of trial and error of which ones get rewarded and which ones don't. Um, I flirted with the idea of training them to like pick up an egg and then if it breaks, it like explodes in their mouth type deal. But I don't know how I feel about that, but that's a little bit of negative reinforcement naturally. Uh, that and that's really messy and sticky. Yeah, um, you know, mopping up a little bit of water is one thing. Um, you know, mopping up an egg, egg is a whole whole another ball game. Yeah. So, uh, anyway, so do you um do you do do you work with um like emotional support animals at all? And my other question is is one of the things that when I had trained, I did puppy training for a, a service dog. And one of the things that I think is is difficult, and I wondered how you would have managed this, is that some dogs are just not, it's just not what they're supposed to do. You know, being a service dog is simply not the career path that they should go down because they don't, they're either too fearful or they're too excitable or they resource guard, or there's a whole lot of reasons why a dog will, would fail as a service dog. And for some dogs, it's just not the right path. So had had to encounter, we've had to say, I, you know, this is a great dog, but this is not the dog that I think should be a service dog. Yeah, for sure. There's an application process that goes in because one, you got to meet the disability part of it, either psychologically or physical. And then, yeah, you got to have a dog that has a lot of great qualities about them, just innate in them. Um, not saying that you can't take a rescue dog and put some time and effort into them and get them trained up really well. Right. Um, We're talking about temperament. And so, you know, temperament goes across the board, whether you are uh, purebred or whether you are um, a a rescue. It's, you know, what are you looking for in the dog? Yeah, yeah. And I don't like to put any dog into a box and say, like, you're never going to be able to do anything. But yeah, there's for sure there's if 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 a dog doesn't. it doesn't show the temperament to be a service dog. We're just going to start by getting him just to be a good dog and understanding the rules of how this game kind of works. Um, we're going to add some more structure to it. And then as you continue doing this for a year or two, 
the dog should become an achiever and they should see the opportunities more clearly to earn the reinforcement if you're setting things up correctly. So yeah, not every dog gets to be able to do it. And um, at that point, then yeah, we, we can just go to having your dream dog and they can still try to do deep pressure therapy, but you can't take them on an airplane with you, you know, because there is a whole thing, right? I don't want to be the person that's putting out bad service dogs. And then it's already very, it's already very kind of messy. Um, so, and there's no, really no regulations or rules about any of it. So it's kind of just what type of person you are and mm, what type of legacy you want to leave behind, you know? Right. Well, I think what people need to understand is that a, a service dog and it has, and a service animal has to be a dog under the American Disabilities Act. And, um, you know, there are certain qualifications and that gives you public access that you do not get with a therapy dog or an emotional support animal. Yeah. They are not protected under the ADA. And I don't think most people understand that. But yeah. Anyway, Tina, do you have another question for Brady? So when you have a challenging case, for example, you have um a family maybe who wants an individual, like they already have a dog and they're like, no, this is gonna be my service dog. And that's not a great fit, right? The the dog is a long way from being able to pass public access rules and things like that. Um, how do you handle those difficult conversations? Yeah, those conversations, I love communication. I love people. And I think that there's always a way to kind of meet someone's needs and listening, listening to them and hearing them out and also being firm in my no, right? I have to be able to stand my ground and um, be firm, but I can do that in a compassionate way and, and explain to them and set something up. I don't have to be a dream killer completely, right? We can set up longer periods of time, but also we want to, if this needs to be done, it depends. I haven't had any um, people who have, like I've had a couple of people who just have money and they just want their service dog. I have to tell them no, and they understood, right? People get it, right? When you have this conversation with them, but I haven't had someone who has had an actual disability that their dog wasn't good enough to, to be trained yet. I'm sure it'll come up. But then it's like, okay, we got to come up with another plan. We either got to change our time period. And it already takes a long time to train a service dog. Um, or we got to look at finding a, a breeder that's going to give you a dog with the qualities that are necessary in order to have a service dog. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's it's interesting. So I'm uh, in a similar environment to Austin in Georgia. I'm in Athens, Georgia. So we have a university town with all of its weird and wonderful and then also a, a major retirement community, right? So a sister city, really, in kind of how things function. And I get a lot of people who are like, well, I have really high anxiety and I want this dog to help me with my high anxiety. And then they go out and adopt a highly anxious dog. And I'm like, right, well, it, neither of you can give what you don't have, <laughs> right? Sure. I'm like, you needed a pug. You needed something that just thinks everything's funny. Like you can't have like the quaking in its shoe, just anxious dog and turn that into a service dog. Like, can they be of service at home? Sure. But not the public access stuff. Like it's not in that dog's gifting. Um, and yeah, people, usually those conversations go pretty well. I had, I had a one uh, this past year where a young woman who's heading off to college wanted her dog to be a service dog for anxiety um, and wanted the dog to menace other people. So we had to discuss that that was not an appropriate role 
for a service animal. That's actually against the law. Thank you. So um, she was quite unhappy to hear that. Um, Yeah. So, so yeah, like, but you're right. We can compassionately give a no. Sorry. That's not, that's not available. um, At least not from a reputable trainer. And, and I think I worry more that there are a lot of disreputable trainers out there who will just take people's money and go, sure. Yeah, we'll do this thing. And I think it's how we're ending up having the service dog work becoming really dicey because we're having dogs that are being placed in communities, in jobs that they are not suited for. And so we're starting to get bites and we're starting to get a lot of pushback in that community, in the community of you know the world of like, no, I don't want to sit on a plane next to a dog who seems unstable. Um, so yeah, yeah it, you know, any more than we want to sit in a plane next to a human who seems unstable, like it's, it's not comfortable. So um, those are difficult conversations. And I think especially for, um, I mean, seasoned veteran old, old trainers, like we, I think have had the conversation enough times that we just love people through it. Um, but I think it can really feel like a, like, I think sometimes people perceive it as being judged when that's not the case, right? It really is providing kind advocacy sometimes to say, yeah, that's that's not a great fit. So I, I love that you brought up those difficult conversations. So what's your, fa- what's your um, favorite behavior? Like when you get one of those clients who's like, sky's the limit, let's do some stuff. What's your favorite thing to teach that you think, really benefits the dog and the family? This is a good question. Because uh, there's a couple different things, a couple things that come to mind. Like one of my, I use a target stick to teach different behaviors, like sit, down, stand, um, pretty, roll over, all these things. And uh, understanding using the target stick and just giving your dog the confidence to like sit, down, stand, roll over. That's a huge one. Like once we can get over that roll over phase, and then we mix in the pedicure police position, right? They can like prone on their side and you can like um, consensually groom their nails and, and give them a massage. Or um, I do a Pono Ono with them too. So I'll sit there and I'll stand like, I'm sorry. I love you. Please forgive me. Thank you. And I'll say this over and over with them. And so one connect with their dog and like build that. Um, and who's target something, right? You're just targeting targets it. Um, that one's just a lot of fun to teach because you disguise the limit. You can teach. I've taught. You can go in between your legs. I've taught them how to jump through my arms, how to get on my back, like all with just using this target stick. Um, so that's one of my favorite things to teach people. Target is um, it's just it's, it's a really useful skill for a lot of animals. When we had horses, one of our horses did not like she would go in a large trailer, but she wouldn't go in a box trailer. So mm-hmm. I taught her to target to a hot pad. And then we hung the hot pad in the back of the trailer. And told her to target and she just trotted right on in. So it's one of those things where um, I think what people are like, why is this important? Because it's one of the first things I used to teach too, is teach people to have the dog target to their hand. I said, because this gives you lots of different ways for your dog to engage with you. And for a shy dog, if you teach them to put their nose to a hand, somebody puts their hand down, the dog's like, oh, I know what that means. I can do this. So it's a real confidence booster. And we found for our horse, it was a real confidence booster because suddenly she was much more interested in targeting the uh, hot padding and getting a treat than she was in being afraid of entering the trailer. 
So I think that it's such a wonderful skill that can be applied in so many different areas. In fact, I had a trainer friend who had, I'm not joking, she had like 33 cats and 12 dogs. Um, She lived on five acres. And one of her dogs, the only thing this dog knew was Target. But she got her to do everything. She used it as a recall. She used it as loosely walking. Um, and that dog was, but that's the one thing he knew and he knew really well. And she never had problems with him. I tell people that I'm like, some trainers only use the target stick, right? Some people only use clickers to train their dog. I'm like, if you only learn this, that would be super cool. Um, and yeah, I love the example of the horse too, because I worked at a, a farm animal sanctuary in San Diego and um yeah i taught a couple of the the turkeys how to touch it or the sheeps and the goats and they would just we'd just move around and play with it one of the pigs was um in a really bad spot and it took me a year um to get her confidence back up and i think it's a great point to talk about like where does confidence come from how do you increase your dog's confidence right um and for me it's just doing the same thing over and over again so when you see it like you say when you someone sticks out their hand you're like oh i know that thing and confidence for us right it's doing podcasts over and over again you're like i know what i'm doing because i've done this a bunch of times so you can be more confident coming on so i um that's that can be um if if anybody knew how many times i had to go through the intro today they would (laughs) say that actually your confidence is probably low. what people don't know because they won't hear this is that i had to do the interest what what was it five six dozen times in order to get this thing rolling today so yes but we do we all have we all have bad days but you're right it's repetition the other thing is is i think that's important for for, for building confidence in dogs and when i'm working when i was working with behavior clients whose dogs especially with shy dogs i always told them i said we have a three-pronged approach here one is let's look at husbandry issues and make sure that that um, we're not in pain and we're on good food, we're getting enough sleep. All those husbandry issues are really important. Then we can talk about behavior modification with classical conditioning and, and desensitization. But the, the thing I want to look at is let's te- let's do some obedience training. Let's teach your dog some things because with people and with with dogs, where do you build confidence? You build confidence in knowing that I can do something. It's building skills that helps to build confidence. So if you're working on the behavior modification to get your dog used to being in public or being around things that are fearful, let's also give it something. So when you ask it to sit or down or target, the dog's like, I know how to do that. I've got something I can do and I'm confident in. And I find it's that three-pronged approach is what really makes behavior modification effective. Yeah, you're totally right. You nailed it. It's you gotta know you gotta know something else to do in those moments you gotta switch from that fight flight or freeze to your thinking brain and that's how you do it by training new behaviors well and it and it's sometimes counterintuitive right i think lots of perfect the sweet gentleman i met with today i was like okay so we're going to talk about management and he's like well that won't ever work and i thought okay well over 35 years like i would beg to differ and he was like, well, at some point, the person has to say hello to the dog. And then he's going to jump. And I was like, oh, okay, yeah. Like, well, that's not all we're going to do. <laughs> right? We're not just going to manage the dog. We're actually going to teach the dog what we want him to do. And then we're going to slowly reduce management as confidence gets built. And, you know, this again, this little dog was lovely. And so he, in, you know, five repetitions was like, okay, so for this lady, the lady with the salmon, um, 
you know, I need to keep my feet off of her because she doesn't like that. And she walks away when I offer it. So, um, and I don't get salmon. So he was, you know, happy to sell his little doggy soul for some salmon. Um, but, but I mean, we covered, we started coming when called, we worked on jumping up, we worked on default behaviors, like, Hey, check in with me. We did some light leash walking, like in a very short period of time, his basic manners improved with just a couple of quick games that he thought was hysterical and that he could win. Right. And then I'm walking the owner through because they're the families who's going to be working with the dog, right? Mm-hmm. Unless they come in and do a, a board and train. Um, that what those incremental steps toward real life are all about, right? We're going to start, it's like dieting, right? We're going to start okay. with a lot of structure and we're slowly going to move into real life, building on success, not building on failure, right? And mm-hmm. I love talking to families about if they get it wrong twice in a row, drop your criteria and start over. Do not keep going, right? Because we're practicing getting it wrong, not getting it right. Um, and and I find that that's really empowering to families when they think about it and go, oh, so it is okay to just put the dog on a leash and reward him for staying with me when a family member is coming home. I'm like, yes, yes, mm-hmm. that is a <laughs> lovely answer, yeah. right? It's It's fun for the dog. It feels kind to us. Um, and it stops a dog, you know, from scooting out the door, jumping on people and getting hit by a car, God forbid. So, um, I think a lot of times people think it's very serious and I'm like, no, like really at its core, dog training should be fun. It, and it's more like parenting, right? We are teaching with every repetition in real life. Right. Um, and that can be very joyful. Sure. I used to yeah. tell people that um, if you are, you know, this should be fun. If you are not having fun, you need to tell me because we need to change up things. Because if you're not having fun, you're not going to stick with it. Two, you're not going to be having fun with your dog. The dog's not going to have a good time. So if we're not having fun, there's something seriously wrong and we need to switch that up, which takes back to your initial idea, you know, that incorporating play according to the study, which will help learning. And um, I think part of it is because you had these endorphins flowing and and you got dopamine going on. And these are all things that help um, to uh, encourage learning. Yeah. And you're firing these, these neurons together and what fires together, wires together. And if you can teach your dog how to be really excited and to be calm, like you're addressing the problem there too. Because the problem is when I get really excited, I do something. And it's like, no, when you feel this emotion, you do this thing. You know, <laughs> and I love that the thing too with them having him hold on leash too, because it's just transferring that of like, what do I want my dog to do? And a lot of people are like, I got to stop this. I got to stop this. And dogs don't understand that stopping is a concept. Humans are pretty bad too. If I tell you, do not say banana, don't even think about the word banana right now. Don't think about the word banana. You know, what are you probably doing? Uh, so it's like, okay, I want my dog to be not near me. How am I going to manage that? Cause I got ignore, manage or train. You can handle anything with those three things. Um, and yeah, I love just taking the, the personal accountability for that moment and giving them that power to be like, oh, this has been in here the whole time. I just, I've been in a box that I haven't known I'm in. <laughs> well, the other thing I find is that sometimes people just, they just need permission from me when I'm working with people with shy dogs, you know, so I'm giving you permission to tell people they can't touch your dog. 
You know, somebody wants to pet your dog, you can say, well, let's ask Fifi. And if Fifi says, no, you get to say, I'm sorry, apparently Fifi is not feeling social today. Let's try another time that you don't have to put your dog into situations that you know the dog is going to be uncomfortable or that you're going to be uncomfortable with as well. You have my permission to be the best advocate you can for yourself and your dog. And it's surprising to me the number of people who just, they breathe this side of relief like, oh, you mean it's okay to put my dog on a leash inside? Oh, it's okay not to, you know, allow everybody to pet my dog who's trembling. Yes, those are all great solutions and you have my permission to do any of them. Yeah, just that in itself is transformative. People just being able to speak their truth and be able to speak it confidently. Like, I didn't realize that either. Like, me just going to parks and places with people, they just like my energy there because they're like borrowing some of my confidence. It works with dogs too. You got a really confident dog, scared dog, you can borrow some of that confidence. It's not the best way to train, but it is a way to train. Um, so, a recent client, their dog completely melted down. Um, like complete meltdown. And it was an interesting situation, probably should not have resulted in a complete meltdown. So I was a little curious about that. But when the but when the dog is like, turns and looks at me, I'm like, yay. And I could see the owners going, what are you doing? And, and that was exactly the thing. I was saying to that dog, like, wow, you have some really big feelings about that, but I'm kind of at a loss as to why. Like, I don't have big feelings about that, but I'm really glad that you checked in with me, right? Like, okay, let's regroup and try that again a different way, right? Um, and and it was funny because when I was relaxed, when he finally turned and checked in, you could see him go, oh, you're not mad at me, right? Because it is embarrassing. I will tell you, like, so Stephanie said this actually in a class once. If your dog barks in public, like in front of any humans, you are positive it is the loudest dog bark that has ever happened. <laughs> Doesn't like it happens to me, it happens to Julie, it happens probably to you, right? Mm -hmm. So when this dog lost it, I'm pretty sure that they're, you know, the the human on the other end of the leash was aghast and mortified, right? At best. And so when this dog turned around and I was just like, good job telling me you're having a hard day. Yeah. He was like, he like literally did a double take and was like, wait, what? And I was like, no, it's, you were a good boy. Good job. You did yeah. a good job. Let's go this way and do this. And he was like, oh, thank goodness. Like, yes, there's a soft place to land, right? There's someone on the end of the leash who's like, okay, good job sharing that information. Yeah, I think that's great. And one of the things I, I'm so glad you mentioned the checking in. I think that's one of the things that's one of the very first things I teach as well, is that people don't realize the value of your dog just disengaging from whatever is going on and engaging with you. Because once your dog is looking at you and checking in with you, then we can ask him to do something else. Yeah, cool. I'm so glad you talked to me. Let's move this way. So um, that was a really good point, Tina. The other thing about barking, one of the things I, I started doing in class was that one of the rules was if another dog barks, your dog gets a treat. And everybody's like, mm. why? And I said, well, a couple of reasons. One is if another dog barks and you say, oh, Sparky, and he looks at you and you give him a treat, what's he learning? That another dog talking means I should check in with my person. Yeah. Right. So then that becomes a cue to check in with my owner and then you can take it out into the real world. So 
when I had to take our Bernie's Mountain Dog into MedVet for some cancer treatment, we were sitting in the lobby and there was a very, very distressed German Shepherd, which I'm not Never having happened. a good day. And yeah, I was just barking. And Buckley looked at me, got a treat. A leather dog across the way barked in response to the German Shepherd. The other thing is, is that if your dog does not respond to Sparky barking, right? Sparky's not getting any backup and he's more likely to calm down, right? So when the German Shepherd whined, then this other lab barked. And once again, Buckley looked at me and got a treat. These two were talking away and Buckley was focused on me and not joining in the fray. So if another dog barks and your dog gets a treat, it really helps to one, calm the other dogs, two, get your dog to focus on you and give them something else to do. Like, okay, I'm going to check in with my person. So I found that to be a really valuable thing. So Brady, when you're doing classical conditioning, when you're teaching that with a family, um, do you find that they're often like, well, that's distracting. I'm distracting the dog. Like, is that how they view it? Or do you think they're grasping the bigger concept? Yeah. And this is a conversation I make sure I pre-frame with them too, because it is, it's, it's hugely important to understand that it's an emotional problem and right. emotional problems are just a little bit different than training a new behavior because the dog's saying, I'm afraid. And if you were to respond back, then the dog's going to be like, oh, I'm right to be afraid. And it's like, oh, this person, it becomes even scarier now. Right. So you want to show them it's about more changing the emotion. And as you change the emotion, because it does get a little tricky because I, my first dog, Bumblebee, which I was talking about, he became uh, lungy towards other dogs and a little bit aggressive. And he, I was doing this little check-in thing and then he built up the pattern. Of, I bark at them. I check in, I get a treat. Right. And now you're like, well, now you're telling me it's wrong. Right, that's not what and I meant. Like, uh-huh, <laughs> uh-huh. And so it's making sure that people understand too, that there's phases of training as well. So it's like, breaking this down first is like the most important thing. And then as your dog builds more confidence, you can add in grandma's rule. And so you like see the dog, do you choose the bark? Do you choose to look at me? What do you, what decision you're going to make? And then I can choose which one to reward as they start engaging that part of their brain. But if that's not there yet, then you got to just start with, um, you see a dog, you get a treat, you know, and just giving them that soft place. Well, to land. Right. And that's one of the things I will say, like, I'm, so I'm a crossover trainer. Like I was raised with, we never use shot collars, but we were prong collars and choke chains and they were used kindly like dogs were not or you know they weren't beaten right it wasn't but I love that this form of training the worst thing that happens is you inadvertently teach a behavior you don't want and we can just train something else we can just teach something else where if your timing is bad or if you're learning a new skill, which for most people, training their dog is a new skill, right? It might be a little rusty. Um, if you're using big, heavy-duty, aversive tools, those errors carry a lot of fallout um, that really the dog pays for. And and so does the community at large. So um, I love that even if we get it wrong, the worst thing we get is a behavior we didn't want. We can name it, we can put it on the shelf, and we can never ask for it again. And we'll just start over with something different. But yeah, yeah it's the really clever dogs who figure out, like, I pull, I stop, I turn and look at my handler, right? And they will I do love that dogs will totally tell on themselves. Like, they will tell on their owner, too, right? Whoever their handler mm-hmm. is. And I'm like, okay, so what Rufus learned was, I pull, 
I turn and look at you, I get a treat, and then I pull again. Yeah. I was like, that wasn't actually what you were trying to teach, right? Like that wasn't, that was not what we were trying to teach. So here's how we're going to do it a little bit different way. Yeah. Um, and then they're like, oh, right. Cause they thought they were doing what we said. Well, they, just, they were you know, some, like, that's the hardest part is they, they were doing exactly what we said. We just, people listening to this, right. They just said the same thing twice and gave two different like things. Right. And it's like, <laughs> It is, but you just got to understand like this, this gap in it. And then you got to understand distance, duration and distractions too. And if things are getting a little too wild, you got to back up a little bit. You got to find that confidence point. And then once they start seeing like the confidence point is, is typically just a distance. Um, and then you can start adding in like the offering conditioning, like the, the, if you do this, you get this type thing. Um, but you've got to find that, that zone first. And if you, if that's impossible, then you kind of just got to ignore it and like work, just get past it. Right. And then be like, I tell people the 10% rule. I remember I was at Thanksgiving one year with my family and I have a big family, as you know, and like all my, there's a bunch of people, my dad's the oldest of eight. So there's a bunch of people and we were all sitting down and one of the younger ones, um, he had his plate and he spilt it all over the floor right before we were about to say the prayer. And everyone turns and looks at him. And then you see the tears start welling up in his eyes and he starts crying and he goes, I'm sorry, accidents happen. And then everyone was like, oh my gosh, like you're totally right. Like someone went and got him a new plate. Someone helped clean it up. Someone helped like give the kid some support, some encouragement. Um, and uh, I, I implemented the 10% rule, which means you can mess up 10% of the time and everything's going to be okay. Like failure is actually learning if you decide to learn something from it. And you can mess up 10% of the time. Everything's going to be okay. Like the world's not going to end. Well, you could probably mess up more than that, right? Like, probably, really? Yeah. Like uh, we fell, we fell on our bikes a lot more, like. We forget that the success doesn't usually, it doesn't usually come at the beginning. Mm -hmm. The success comes after a lot of getting it wrong. And there's not a perfect way, like, okay, so sorry, dog trainers who are listening. There is not a perfect way. There are just lots of different ways. And we, mm -hmm. and different things work in different situations. So the little dog I was working with yesterday, who was like, you know, pull, turn, pay. I just went, oh, while she was still chewing, I backed up three steps, paid her again. While she was still chewing, backed up three steps, paid her again. So what happened was when she tried to go back to the pattern, she's a young dog that she thought she learned correctly, but we just, we, there was an accent there that we didn't intend. She learned when there's a little bit of pressure on the collar, the human's moving backwards. Right. So she fixed it herself. Basically, there was no real force. It was just the momentum of the movement was going to be in the other direction. And suddenly she was looking at mom going, are you going to back up again? Or are you going to want like what? Where are we going? Are we going to turn right? Like, what are we doing? And just that reinstating the no, 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 I have information for you was huge for that dog handler team. Because mom's mad that the dog pulls every time, even though she's doing what I told her to do. The dog is like, I don't know what the rules are. I don't know what the rules are. I thought I learned it right. You know, and and I see that a lot with families that they're like, no, I'm doing what you said. And I'm like, okay, show me. We'll just coach through that. Like, I'm not going to be 
my ego's not all that invested. Like then I explain, then I didn't teach you correctly. So show me what you thought I taught you. And I'm going to help you with what, however that got off the rails. And it's okay. Yeah. Like it's, it's totally okay. Because many times, even if we say it the right way in air quotes, how we are, I more and more, the older I get, we're all neurologically divergent. It just means different things. Like it doesn't matter how much you're trying to be really clear. It's going to get interpreted because it's going through filters for that other individual. Mm -hmm. And they're yeah. trying to get it right. The same way the dogs are trying to get it right. Like, I don't know anybody. Who, I mean, maybe that person's out there who wakes up in the morning and goes, I'm going to screw up my kid. I'm going to screw up my marriage. I'm going to screw up my dog today. That's, that's my first three things on my to-do list, right? Everybody's just trying to do the best they can. And it's okay. And you don't have to be perfect. Obviously, I'm boldly imperfect. But you do have to be fun and you better have good cookies so that the dog at least thinks you're interesting while you're a weirdo. <laughs> like, I really do think my dogs like walk up to other dogs and go, my owner is the weirdest human being I have ever met there. She's so odd. Right. But they think I'm funny. Yeah. So they'll do what I ask. I love it. I love it. You got to be a character to get their attention. And it's like, I love acting weird. It's one of the things I talk to clients about. I was like, you gotta act a little weird. And I do jujitsu and stuff too. So I like to roll around on the ground with the dogs and like get all goofy with them. And um, they love it. I saw one person, I teach them to press these buttons too. So like ringing potty bells, or like pressing buttons and you got a bunch of dogs that do that. But I watched one person on TikTok and there's um, an English bulldog and the button said like, let's fight. And the dog went over and pressed it and they started to like wrestle. <laughs> the dog went over and pressed it again. They started wrestling. I was like, that's such a cool thing. <laughs> To have with your dog. What I learned very early on in parenting was um, that if I make a mistake, there's a virtual 100% guarantee I'm going to get a second shot at this one. And that even if I do it right, there's probably a 99% chance I'm going to get another shot at this. And so it kind of took the pressure off this, this realization that, um, you know, I'm not endangering anybody's life here. And if I make a mistake, I can probably, I can own it and I can try and do better the next time. And even if I do it right, there's pretty much going to be a next time that's going to be pretty similar. And you know what? The solution this time may need to be tweaked the next time. So I think this, this taking the pressure off to be perfect helps people and dogs so much. But I, I would get that. And I imagine you do too, is that these, these people who are just like, I have to get it right. You know, there's a certain pressure. I think the problem with our instant gratification society and, you know, what you see on Facebook or Instagram or TikTok or whatever it is, is you see just a tiny little photograph or picture of somebody's life. You don't see behind the scenes. You don't see what it took to get to there. You don't see the the angst and the trial and the, and the dirty house and, you know, all that other stuff that's out there. And we have to remind ourselves that nobody but nobody is perfect and that um, you're just seeing a, a Polaroid moment and move on from there. And I think once you give owners of, you know, the, the permission to make mistakes, the permission to try again, the permission to just be themselves with their dogs, that's when I find that the magic really starts to happen. Well, so sometimes, so a, this is an old story. This was year, a bazillion years ago. I had a client who had a German Shepherd who was reactive on leash. Um, 
I knew where they went and walked. So one day I was driving between appointments and kind of saw them off in the horizon and snuck up on them with a candy bar. Because if you're doing what I tell you to do and I find you out in public, you get like a gift card or candy or something. This was winter, so it was candy bars. But um, as I was, I was probably 300 yards away, so could observe what was going on. But the dog didn't register that I was there yet. Neither did the handler. The dog went to spin happily, like big, open, happy body language but then started to bark being enthusiastic, right? So what we would, many people would say, like, that's a reactive dog. Like, I don't want a giant giant German shepherd barking at me, bouncing at the end of the leash. Well, the woman dropped the leash by accident and the dog immediately downstayed. That's cool. And I watched her, like, she didn't know I was there. So she picked the leash up. He went back to barking at his friend. She dropped the leash. She downstayed. She picks the leash up. He's barking. And now he's laughing because he realizes it's a game. So she like throws the leash at him and he downstays. And she goes over and says hello to the other dog and he stays there. But we had worked on if we drop your leash, downstay, don't run away. Yeah. So here she made an error. Like she accidentally dropped the leash and found a beautiful solution. And so many times, like in puppy class yesterday, two of the puppies were playing and I was like, "Mm, I'm watching, I'm watching. But what I got to see was that they could get a little aroused and the older of the two puppies went, oh, this doesn't feel good and brought the arousal down. And the other puppy was like, no, we are going to play rough. And the older puppy was like, no, like very kindly. No, we're not. And then I had two puppies who resolved it all on their own. And those owners freely said we would have interrupted and we would have missed the magic because a lot of times the magic is on the other side of what in the moment I might perceive to be the error. Yeah. Like there is magic sometimes in just going like the dog who melted down here in class. By the end of the session, he could handle anything we threw at him. He just needed to know he could melt down and it was okay. And we would hear him like he wasn't in trouble. Um, And and I've checked with them like that was, I think that was Monday, today's Wednesday. I checked with them yesterday and they were like, we've had no meltdowns. Like we've still got other stuff we're working on, but those big meltdowns went away. It has been a joy having you on the podcast today. Like you, it's. I mean, Julie already gave me the big laugh of the day, but I love that you're doing the magic you're doing in Austin. And when I have clients out that way, I will absolutely be, when they're ready for boots on the ground, I got some boots to call. I'm so excited to have another friend in the industry. Yeah. That's what I feel like it's all about now is like, there's some interesting characters in the dog world and we're really against like using punishment and these type of things right is we got to be and i like when you brought up giving candy bars to your clients for doing the right thing we got to be it's got to be a whole system we got to have this in all aspects all areas of our life and um you can't fight negativity with punishment i mean you could try but typically all that does is make the person even bolder um so you got to go and create a community that's just as loud if not louder um, and that's part of my mission is to unite dog trainers and be like, you have skills that I don't have. I learned things from this conversation 
and dropping the ego and being like, okay, how can we work to be a force for good instead of like, who's taking my client? And it's like, nah, man, like there's so many dog trainers out there. You think, you think people only buy from Amazon? Like there's other places out there, but Amazon provides a lot of value. How can you provide even more value rather than just hating on someone? It's like, you gotta, you gotta put in the time and the work to do it. So that's what I'm enjoying doing. So I've been doing on this podcast and meeting just amazing people. So I'm glad to have come across yours. Well, and when yeah, you sure. have cool things, feel free to come on, like, give us a shout. You've got the booking link. You can always say like, Hey, I, I have a really great game. I've been teaching families with kids and I want to come share it. Come on and talk to us. We would love to have you. Okay. Absolutely. We have to have you come back um, anytime and we'll make sure that there are links on the, on the, on the uh, website to, um, to you so that people who are listening in Austin know how to find you. And um, we and really, keep it weird. Much, yeah, we would really love to have you back on. And thanks so much for uh, being here and for listening to your family dog. Thanks for listening to your family dog. Got questions, interesting ideas, visit www.yourfamilydogpodcast.com to share your thoughts. <laughs>